I have to admit, I, I just find myself enraged at the way the enemy is mocking Christ these days in ostensibly evangelical churches. It, it is absolutely sickening to me. I, I'm furious with churches being led by sodomites and lesbians and and drag queens pretending to be servants of Christ. I saw another example of that in St. Luke's Lutheran Church of Logan Square in Chicago where some guys up on the stage leading a prayer time with the children dressed in drag, a big white wig and all the makeup and a white dress and I, you know, folks, I just, I, I have to say, I just don't know how much longer, how much longer is the Lord going to tolerate this? I mean, these things are such an abomination to him, and certainly this is, this is the satanic legacy of theological and political liberalism. And every Christmas we see an increasing attack on the Lord Jesus Christ and all who belong to him. We are being besieged by those who hate him. And so it's my great joy to come before you this morning and take up arms against the enemy of our souls in this dark culture and join together with you as we fight for the truth. All week long, you know, the world seeks to dethrone God with all the lies and temptations that appeal to our flesh. And my passionate desire every Sunday morning is to restore the kingdom of God in your hearts so that God will reign upon the throne of your heart. And I do this primarily through what Paul calls the foolishness of preaching. The foolishness of preaching. 1 Corinthians one twenty one. For God is well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And of course, that's ultimately talking about the gospel that is being preached, but that comes through preachers, and we're all preachers in various ways. And so I am here before you to join with you in proclaiming the excellencies of Christ, and I trust that you've prepared your heart to do the same. So this morning we want to continue to marvel at the glory and the majesty of, of God. Oh, come, let us adore him. And we began last week by looking at four angelic announcements surrounding the birth of Christ given to four different people and each of them complaining or uh, basically proclaiming four different prophetic fulfillments. Now, we didn't get to all of them. We're going to get to the rest of them here today. And each of these Scenarios depict Jesus in unique ways, four different ways. So the little outline is, first of all, we saw last week Jesus as the king priest, and secondly, as the son of God, and now today we're going to see him as the savior from sin and as the glory of God. Now, by way of reminder, last week when we looked at Jesus as the king priest, we reviewed uh, what the word of God had to say with respect to Gabriel's announcement to Zacharias in Luke 1. And it was significant, as you will recall, for God to break his silence in the temple of Jerusalem, the very place from which his glory had departed some 500 years earlier. And so God sends his messenger to this faithful priest offering incense and tells him that his son is going to be the divine forerunner of the Messiah, the king priest that would come. In God's marvelous plan of redemption, all of what Israel looked forward to, all that the sacrificial system pointed to, and all that the prophets predicted were fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was of the order of Melchizedek, you will recall, and that's very important. The Levitical system was replaced by a new priest offering a new covenant because of a new sacrifice. Hebrews 7 helps us understand that the priesthood of Melchizedek, from which Jesus 
shall we say, descended, was superior to the Levitical priesthood from Aaron in that that priesthood, the Melchizedekian priesthood, was universal, it was royal, it was righteous, it was eternal, and so forth. So we saw Jesus presented as the king priest, and then secondly, Jesus as the Son of God. And there we looked at Gabriel coming to Mary in Luke 1, 26 and following, reminding us that God's holy justice could only be satisfied by a holy ransom, And, of course, he had to provide that ransom, which was his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That work of redemption required a theanthropon, a God-man, a man who was fully man but also fully God that could fuse the two natures together in this indissoluble bond. Jesus had to take upon himself the nature of man in order to be punished for our sin, but also he had to be God to be perfect, the perfect sacrifice, and also to endure the sufferings of all those that the Father had given him in eternity past. So that's a little review, and now that brings us to the angel appearing to Joseph. And we're going to see here that... Um, the emphasis is on, on Jesus being the Savior from sin. So, take your Bibles and look at Matthew 1. We will probably have it on the screens here. Matthew 1, beginning in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. It's very important that you understand the context here. It's really fascinating. Joseph was what we would call a construction worker. He was a carpenter. Uh, a righteous man, according to verse 19. He would have been an Old Testament saint, betrothed and engaged to Mary. And imagine, all of a sudden, he discovers she's pregnant. So naturally, he's devastating. He is devastated completely. So God places a special premium on sexual purity. We know that according to Scripture, and Joseph understood that. In fact, may I just remind you, especially you young people in this culture that has no moral compass whatsoever, that God demands abstinence outside of marriage, and he demands sexual fidelity within marriage. Anything apart from that will bring divine chastening into your life. It will bring misery into your life. Remember that our body belongs to the Lord. Our body is a member of Christ, the Bible says. Our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It has been bought with the price, so it should be treated with the utmost care and respect and used for his glory. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us, in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, to present our bodies a living and a holy sacrifice to God, which is our spiritual service of worship. And similarly, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 3, 
For this is the will of God. You people want to know what the will of God is for your life? Well, here's one aspect of that will that is very clear. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And we can rejoice, dear friends, knowing that the Holy Spirit that dwells within the redeemed gives us the power to maintain chastity outside of marriage and fidelity within the marriage covenant between one man and one woman. That is God's design. And by the way, this is the same power working in us that raised Jesus from the dead. You realize that? According to Ephesians 1, 18 and following. So, with this background, Joseph knows these things, and he naturally assumes, as any man would, that Mary has somehow cheated on him. So, I'm sure he's wondering, does she really love me? What is going on here? But, because of his enormous love for her, he did not want to disgrace her or shame her or humiliate her. So, the text said says that he wanted to put her away secretly, which was a common way of describing divorce. So, he's in personal agony here. He's overwhelmed. He's confused. And his mind is made up. He's desired to put her away. And isn't it interesting? This is precisely the kind of situation that the Lord loves so that he can intervene in some magnificent way and prove himself powerful. And that's exactly what happens here. So he sends the angel Gabriel to him in a dream, and he intervenes in Joseph's pain. And he does this basically in two ways. First of all, he is going to explain to Joseph the purpose for all of this, because obviously he didn't know. Again, Matthew 1 and verse 20, But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. In other words, hold on, Joseph. Don't put her away. Don't divorce her. She has not been unfaithful to you. The child within her is from God. Now, imagine, first of all, being overwhelmed, but then also having relief that, oh, oh my. But why? Why would you do this? Verse 21, and she will bear a son. This is why. She's going to bear a son, and you should call his name Jesus, for it is he who will, here's the reason now, save his people from their sin. Beloved, herein is the divine purpose. This child will be a savior of sins. A savior of sins. Jesus is not only the king priest, he is not only the son of God, but he is the savior of sins. Jesus from the Hebrew Joshua means Yahweh will save. By the way, I hope you notice that he did not say, for it is he who will boost your self-esteem. It is he who will give you purpose in life, even though there's some merit to that. It is he who will help you hit more home runs and become fabulously wealthy. No, it is he who is going to save people from their sins. Folks, there is nothing on earth more devastating and more damning than sin. According to 1 John 3, 4, sin is lawlessness. And as we look at the Word of God, we see that sin is a violation of God's holy standard. It is an affront to a holy God. It is high treason against the Most High. It is missing the mark of divine holiness. It is open rebellion against God, high treason of the worst sort. And all you have to do is just look at our culture, and you see evidence of all of that. Sin, according to Scripture, separates man from God spiritually. Moreover, it separates man from nature. We see it's because of sin that we have to work the way we do and, and struggle with the sweat of our brow. It also separates man from man. The curse on Adam and Eve 
tells us that we're going to have conflict in every relationship, even conflict in the spiritual realm. And as we look at Scripture, we see that it is sin that rules every heart. We're all born in it. It's part of our nature. No one escapes it. Sin attacks everyone at birth. And over the years, it degrades and it destroys and, and it disfigures. Every tear is caused by sin. Every broken heart, every war, every death. That's why in Joshua 7.13, it's described as the accursed thing. It's compared in Scripture to the venom of snakes, to the stench of death. And because of sin, man is spiritually dead. He is at enmity with God, the Scriptures tell us. He is alienated from God. He is a slave to Satan and to the kingdom of darkness. The Word of God is foolishness to people because of sin. They're spiritually blind and deaf, incapable of doing anything to help them become reconciled to a holy God. Because of our sin nature, all that we do and all that we are is fundamentally offensive to a holy God. That's what sin is. We have no desire for God apart from His work within our heart that causes us to be born again. The great doctrine of regeneration. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. So folks, sin is the most catastrophic problem in the universe. Not COVID. Not illegal immigration. Not all of the economic problems and on and on and on it goes. All of those things are rooted in sin. Sin is to humanity, dear friends, what radiation is to the flesh. It will destroy and it will ultimately kill everything that it touches. And so therefore, I want to remind you how important it is that we have a savior from sin. It should, this should cause all men to tremble with fear. And you know, one of the other things about sin is one of its chief characteristics is its ability to blind people from seeing it in their life. The heart is deceitful. It is desperately wicked. So people don't see the seriousness of sin in their life. Moreover, they do not see the consequences of sin in their life. And so, therefore, the damned frolic in their rebellion like children playing in the snow. Ah, there is no God, there is no judgment, and on and on it goes. But because of sin, we know that our Creator subjected everything in His creation to futility. Everything is enslaved by the corruptive powers of sin. This is why marriages fall apart. This is why kids rebel. You know, this is why husbands become abusive tyrants. This is why wives become harlots and have no fear of God. This is why they would become slaves to their lust. This is why a woman would abort her baby. This is why women would abandon their children to, to the influences of the world, which, by the way, is the most severe form of child abuse. And because of sin, millions are blinded by the deceptions of false teachers. Entire nations are plunged into chaos. Men and women and children all over the world who name the name of Christ are tortured and killed. And yet Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in Romans 6.23 we read, for the wages of sin is what? Is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, dear friends, the angel is sent to Joseph to pronounce this magnificently wonderful, glorious news. And that is that Jesus, 
this child that your fiance and wife-to-be is going to bear, this Jesus will be the Savior from sin. And he goes on to explain his purpose here, and that is to fulfill God's prophetic promise. Notice verse 22 and following. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And here's the prophecy. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Now, in order to understand Isaiah 7, 14, that whole section, let me remind you that this is in the context of confronting a wicked king, King Ahaz, who, who reigned over Judah. He was the son of Uzziah, a great king, but Ahaz was exceedingly wicked. And if you will recall in Isaiah 5, there is the pronouncement of judgment against proud Judah. They thought they were militarily invincible and economically prosperous, but because of their religious hypocrisy, because of their idolatry, because of their sexual immorality and their perversions and their drunkenness and their dissipation and, and, and materialism and corrupt leadership, God was going to judge them. And Ahaz, in that context, was basically a poster child of these abominations. In fact, he reinstituted uh, the worship of Molech, which included uh, child sacrifice. In fact, he sacrificed his own son. Now, in this context, we know that the kings of, of Syria, as well as Samaria, threatened to dethrone him. And, of course, this would jeopardize God's promise for an eventual Messiah to come through the line of David. So God was going to do something here. But in the face of such a threat, you would think that this king would cry out to Yahweh, the God of Israel, to save them. But no, instead, he sought protection from another wicked king, Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria. So God sent Isaiah to confront Ahaz, to warn him to repent, to assure him that God himself would deal with the threat from Syria and Samaria. Trust in me is essentially what God is saying, not the Assyrians, but Ahaz refused. He even removed all of the gold from the temple and he gave it to Tiglath-Pileser to seal their unholy relationship. So if you read that whole section, Isaiah comes back to him again a second time to assure him of a to assure Ahaz of God's deliverance if he would only trust in him. No, 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 no. I'll handle this. And in light of such blatant rebellion against the faithful mercies of God, the following prophecy was made. This is the one that the angel referred to when speaking to Joseph regarding his new adopted son Jesus. Isaiah seven thirteen. And Isaiah the prophet spoke to Ahaz. Here's what he says. Listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel. In the original language, the word you there is in the plural. So he's addressing here not only Ahaz, but all of the covenant people promising that he would not allow anyone to annihilate his people. And by the way, that's still true today, though they remain, the Jewish people remain the most hated people on the planet. And I might add that no one will be allowed to terminate the royal line of David that was promised some 1,400 years earlier from that time. In Genesis 49, verse 10, we read, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. We could also go back 900 years from that era to the promise that was given to David through the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel 7:13. The promise to build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
And so now, some 700 years later, this prophecy is fulfilled. God promised a sign, the sign of this child, indicating that he would never forsake his people. And this promise comes through Emmanuel, God with us. So to summarize this, he's coming to Joseph and saying, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For God himself has conceived within her the promised emancipator of sin, the King of glory, the Lord of hosts, the rightful heir of the throne of David. And of course, Joseph was from the lineage of David. In fact, He's called Joseph, son of David. And this, I might add, verifies the fact that Jesus was Joseph's legally adopted son. And therefore, Jesus had the royal right to ascend the throne of David. In fact, if you go back to Matthew's genealogy, you will see this. The royal lineage of Jesus is, is uh, as the rightful heir of the throne of David, is traced there, as well as his deity. So... Great news for Joseph. This is incredible news. Not only are you going to get to marry the love of your life, who is still a virgin, but together you have the unfathomable privilege of parenting the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who will save his people from their sin, who will be Emmanuel, God with us. God with us is an important Old Testament concept. And God repeatedly promised that his presence would guarantee the fulfillment of his, all of his covenantal promises to his people. And often we read in scripture how God would manifest himself. Even though he is a spirit being, he would manifest himself in what is called the Shekinah could be translated the presence of God's glory. And that referred to this, this resplendent, brilliant, ineffable, dazzling light. You will recall the presence of God was housed within the tabernacle and later in the temple. In fact, the Hebrew term for tabernacle is mishkan. It's derived from the root word in the Hebrew, shakan. Um, which means to dwell or to rest or abide. And from Shachan comes the term Shekinah, denoting the glorious presence of God. And throughout the Old Testament, you will see from time to time this mysterious light of his presence, his glorious Shekinah appearing. And of course, it was housed first in the tabernacle, later, later in the temple. But now the point is this, dear friends the Shekinah of the living God would be contained in a child. Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus Christ. And later in John 1 and verse 14, we read, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so is it any wonder that the fourth and the final angelic announcement would include a dazzling display of the Shekinah glory of the living God who came to tabernacle amongst us as God with us, our Savior and our Lord. And we see this when Gabriel appears to the shepherds in Bethlehem that we read a little bit earlier in Luke 2, beginning in verse 8. Let me read that passage to you again. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. 
Now, let me recap this for you, folks, because this is, this is so crucial to get a hold of when you think about Christmas. What we've seen so far is the angel Gabriel comes to a priest named Zacharias and tells him of a coming person, Jesus, a priest king. And then he comes to the Virgin Mary, where Jesus is depicted as the Son of God. And then to Joseph, Jesus as the Savior from sin. And now he comes to these lowly shepherds, announcing to them the birth of Jesus, the Savior. And here we see him being praised and worshipped in resplendent, dazzling glory as the Shekinah returns. And here we see the emphasis now on Jesus as the glory of God. Again, notice verse 9. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. Dear friends, sheer terror is the appropriate response for anyone to witness the Shekinah of the living Christ. But notice verse 10, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy. This is good news. What is the good news? It is the manifestation of his glorious presence. Not that he's coming to judge, but to grant mercy. And this Shekinah now is going to dwell in a child in a manger, as we will see. Folks, think about this. When Christ came the first time, he did not come in vengeance and wrath, but in humility and in mercy. Not to search and destroy, but to seek and to save sinners like you, like me. Not to punish, but to forgive I want to back up for a few minutes and give you the big picture of this magnificent issue of Christ coming as the glory of God and how that ties in to his Shekinah. Again, the ineffable brilliance of the light of God's presence was, was a, a frightening reality and, and mystery in the Old Testament. And, and yet we see that it is, it is central to the whole theme of redemption all through Scripture. Again, remember, God is spirit. And often when he would materialize himself, he would do so in the glorious light of his Shekinah, which could be translated the radiance of his presence. You will recall that in the garden, Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day in the presence of God. Evidently, that light was there and they could see it and be a part of it. They had sweet fellowship with him prior to sin. But then sin enters, which means there's a refusal for man to give God the glory. And so the light of his presence would consume a sinner. And so he removes them from the garden and he places angels with flaming swords to keep them out which would have been an act of mercy, lest they be consumed or vaporized by the presence of God. And so what we see is how sin separates man from God. And so God in his mercy removed them from his holy presence. But what is also fascinating is that grace is immediately set into motion and God in his mercy begins to pursue them to bring them back into his glorious presence. In Exodus 13, we read how that God's presence led his people through the wilderness of Sinai, a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. In Exodus 33, we read how the covenant people, after 400 years of captivity, wander in the wilderness. They even worship a golden calf that they make and call it Yahweh. And then there's a time of repentance. They enter into the promised land. Moses needs assurance. And so he says, I pray thee, show me thy glory. And you will recall what God did as he hid Moses in the cleft of the rock. And he covered him somehow with his hand until he passed over and only allowed him to see 
His back, not His face. And in verse 14, we read what God said to him. My presence shall go with you. So the glory returns. Once again, note the pattern. Man sins, separation occurs, God seeks, there is repentance, there is forgiveness, and the glory returns. So God asks, now will you acknowledge my glory, children of Israel? And the answer was, oh yeah, well we're afraid, but then as soon as he's not near them, so to speak, they rebel. So the children of Israel die in the wilderness. Ah, but grace continued to pursue. In Exodus 40, they erect the tabernacle in at the foot of Mount Sinai. And the 12 tribes of Israel camp around it in perfect formation, in perfect symmetry, so that they could all focus on the tabernacle, which prefigured the Messiah to come. And inside, of course, is the Holy of Holies, the dwelling place of God. And in Exodus 40, in verse 34, we read, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. There it comes back again. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And we know that the glory, the Shekinah glory of the living God hovered between the cherubim, which had the outstretched wings over the mercy seat, the place of propitiation, and that golden lid separated man from the presence of God because underneath in the ark were the tablets of stone that had been violated. And all of that symbolized the fact that on Yom Kippur, when the blood was sprinkled upon the lid, the place of propitiation, the only way sinful man could ever come into the presence of a holy God was through the shedding of innocent blood, all of which pointed to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But sadly, the people chose to remain unfaithful. Again, the cycle of sin... There is separation, then eventually repentance, forgiveness, and then the glory returns. The glory returned in 1 Kings 8. You remember Solomon builds the temple. The glory of the Lord fills the house of the Lord in such a way that the priests weren't even able to minister. The Shekinah presence returns again. Folks, remember, worship is all about giving God glory. Now will you obey me? No. And then we read in Ezekiel chapter 8 all the way through chapter 10 how they rebelled against God. And there you read about the hideous corruption of idolatry that characterized the people. We read how Ezekiel gradually watches the Shekinah presence of God depart Ichabod being written across the doorway of the temple, so to speak, which means the glory has departed. And if you read those passages of Scripture, you see how it rises from between the cherub above the, in the Holy of Holies, above the mercy seat. It rises up through the Holy of Holies. It hovers over the threshold of the temple court, and then it moves again and pauses over the east gate of the Lord's house, which, by the way, was the same gate from which the Savior would depart when he was rejected. And in Ezekiel 11, verse 23, we read this, And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain which is east of the city, referring to the Mount of Olives. Folks, this is the precise sequence of the departure of his glorious presence that will be reversed when he returns again in power and in great glory. Then 500 years goes by, no sign of the Shekinah, no sign of God's presence, no glory, no angels, and then suddenly the celestial brilliance of the divine presence returns to these lowly shepherds caring for sacrificial 
sheep on a Judean hillside. Luke 2, verse 11, we have an amazing illustration of grace. There we read, Today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Isn't this amazing? This is the good news now that, that comes to the lowliest of the culture. His birth is first announced to them. Notice the text says, He has been born for you, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And isn't it true that the Savior comes to exalt the lowly like you and me? The long-awaited Savior prophesied and prefigured in the Old Testament, the one pictured in millions of animal sacrifices that could never forgive sin, has finally come. The Word became flesh and is now dwelling amongst us, and we can behold His glory. Jesus came, and Jesus is, to this day, the light of the world to deliver men from darkness, even though sinful men prefer his darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Christ has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So folks, don't miss this. Sin has separated man from the holy presence of God. But God has sought us. He has pursued us with his unfailing love and that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. And in him, there is forgiveness of sins. In him, there is the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. I love what Luke 2.13 says. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Think about this. Suddenly we have an innumerable number of, of angels around these shepherds. I can only imagine, I know what it's like to be out in the wilderness in the middle of the night. I, I mean, just put yourself there. Now you're seeing all of this. And these are beings that God has created that, that, that are eyewitnesses to the glory and the majesty of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They have seen the glory of the Son prior to His incarnation. And now they are absolutely stunned at such divine love and humility that the Son would condescend to earth in human form. So the Son of God now sets aside His majesty. According to Philippians 2, we know that He empties Himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men and the angels are just dumbfounded at such love. For God himself to stoop so low and then to eventually, vicariously, bear the curse that rested upon those whom he came to save. Absolutely astounding. What an indescribably glorious mercy this is. Oh, child of God, when you think of the Christmas lights, I hope that you will think of the presence of God dwelling amongst men in the incarnate Christ. And like the other angelic announcements, the resplendent light of Christ was, was prophesied. We can go back to Numbers 24 and verse 17. There we read, A star shall come forth from Jacob. Literally, a koshav will come forth from Jacob, which means a shining forth or a blazing forth. And certainly elements of this prophecy was fulfilled with this angelic announcement. But more specifically, later on, we know that, that the Magi, the kingmakers in the east, the Persian kingmakers, we read how that they saw a star, which is in Greek an austere, which means a, a blazing forth, no doubt an element somehow of the Shekinah, not a star like you think up in the sky. This is part of that Koshav, and they know where to go. They probably learned all of that way back from Daniel, who used to be over them. And so they come to worship the Christ child. 
In Acts, we can read about the Apostle Paul who was blinded by the Shekinah presence of the living Christ on the road to Damascus. In Luke 9, we see how Jesus allows the ineffable glory of his presence to somehow blaze forth on the Mount of Transfiguration so Peter, James, and John could witness it. In verse 29 of Luke 9, we read, And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. It could be translated glistening. By the way, it's, it's, it's the only place where that term is used. It, it's, it's like it's describing a brilliant uh, a flashing light like lightning. And then we read, and they saw his glory. Matthew 17, verse 2, and he was transfigured. Metamorphotai in the original language from the Greek term metamorphosis. And this speaks of Jesus taking on the form of his heavenly glory. There was a metamorphosis that occurred. And he was transfigured. We could put it this way. And there was a metamorphosis that took place before them. And his face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light. And Hebrews 1.3 tells us Christ is, quote, the radiance or literally the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person. But oh, dear friends, tragedy of tragedy, tragedy of tragedies. The Savior that came was rejected. He was despised. And the glory departed. And it has not been seen in over 2,000 years although at some level it is housed in his church. According to Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So because Jesus is our priest king, because he is the son of God, because he is the savior from sin, because he is the glory of God, he is going to return. And in Matthew chapter 24, verse 29, we read about that. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. And the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. In Isaiah chapter 60, first three verses, we read how the glory of the Lord will blaze forth once again in the millennial kingdom. There, the Spirit of God speaks through his prophet and says, Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. And we know that in the new Jerusalem, according to Revelation 21 and verse 22, the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Dear friends, I challenge you this Christmas season. Bow your knee before Jesus as the King Priest. Bow before Him before it's too late as the Son of God. Bow before Him as the Savior from your sin, knowing that Jesus is God, the manifestation of the presence of the living God. And he has revealed himself to us in his person and in his work and in his word and also in his church. Whether then you eat or you drink or whatever you do, you do all for what? For the glory of God. Beloved, live in the light of his glorious return. He's going to snatch us away someday. Anticipate the coming of the king. You want to ask yourself, how will he find me? Are you ready? Have you confessed him as Savior and Lord? I close with 1 John 2 and verse 28. Also over in chapter 3 and verse 2 and following. 
where do we read this? And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. In chapter 3, he says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Let's pray together. Father, may this be the passion of our hearts that we have our hope fixed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the light of the world, the radiance of the very presence of God. Thank you for your word. Thank you for its clarity and yet its complexity, even for the mysteries that we don't fully understand. Nevertheless, as we read these words and see these truths through the eyes of faith, we rejoice knowing that you are God and we are not and that somehow in your infinite love and mercy you have drawn us unto yourself and set your love upon us all because Christ came to this earth as a baby and died in our stead and rose again from the grave and is coming again not in obscurity but in glory for all the world to see we thank you and we give you praise in Jesus name amen we pray you've been edified by this presentation you've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton Tennessee for more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.